you're a newcomer or visiting with us, if you misbehave during the week, we make you sit in the back corner over here. In fact, no, the Adams would not misbehave during the week. I know they would not. This morning's sermon will begin with the reading of just one verse, uh, Isaiah 7, 14. Also have your hymnal open. Really, that would be best to have you to uh, hymn 194. The uh, exposition of Hebrews after the Advent season. For the next five sermons, I will use uh, five of the great Advent hymns of the Christian faith uh, to guide the sermon content. Uh, in these sermons, I will teach a bit on the hymn story, analyze the to see if it's uh, see of its biblical depth, and then try to make some modern applications regarding uh, the deep theological truths that are therein. The focus. Uh, am I doing something here that's not is, is making it harder? Because it's. Let me do this. Let's distract. I'm easily distracted. I always have been, so I got to be careful about. Uh, today's hymn of focus is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, during the remaining Sundays, I want to cover several other hymns. Uh, next week, we will look at uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, then Old Flesh Keep Silence, What Child Is Joy to the World. Uh, why a focus on hymns at such a time, would, you might be asking. Really, to put it to you this way, good hymns, those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music, have endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. It is said that at the beginning of a sermon, the great reformer Martin Luther held up his Bible and said, this is the gospel. And then he held up his hymnal and said, this is how we remember it. And he was right. And thanks to him and many others, this hymnal is a lot bigger now than the one he held up so many years ago. George Sampson said it well. The hymn echoes in the heart when the sermon is forgotten. Hear God's word, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your son. But Lord, we don't want to go another moment without realizing the depth and the width and the height and the length of the love you have for us in Christ Jesus, who you have sent. I pray, Lord, as we analyze the words of this hymn and compare it with your holy word, that we might again be refreshed with the gospel and renewed in our strength to serve you. Because of what, what you have done so many years ago, which has been planned in eternity past. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all the great hymns that focus upon the advent of Jesus Christ, this ancient hymn called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is certainly one of the greatest. The words are very old and extremely well thought out. More importantly, the words are thoroughly biblical and the theology is exceedingly sound. Perhaps what is so wonderful about this hymn is the sense of expectation it produces in the congregation as it is sung. As we sing together the refrain, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We have a sense of looking forward to Christ's future coming in light of his initial advent. We are here viewing a true masterpiece of word and music. 
the first hymn in our focus is without a doubt among the greatest hymns ever penned. Let's first consider together the story of this hymn that is how we came to sing the hymn printed in our Trinity hymnal before you. Now the words for this hymn are taken from an ancient chant or liturgical song. More specifically, the words of the hymn come from the great O antiphons of uh, the 8th century. Now, we have to go back further to find these words first appearing in the history of the church. In fact, around the 5th century, we find almost these exact words in the form of prayers prayed by those believers. By the 8th century, they are used in a chant-like setting where you would have a choir arranged with one half of the monks on one side and one half on the other. They would sing one verse The other side would antiphonally respond by singing the next verse. So it was designed to be sung antiphonally, back and forth. That's the 8th century. The 12th century, the reason why your hymnal notes that the words are from the 12th century, those are the Latin words that the hymn translator and writer, John Mason Neal, used to translate. The words, however, are much older than the 12th century. By the 12th century, though, we have what are called the seven great O antiphons. And I have those there listed for you in there, uh, the starting out in Latin so that you might understand uh, what these O, meaning O come, O come, these O antiphons are and how they are referenced back from the 12th century. Seven of them originally made up this song. Notice what they are. Wisdom from on high, Lord and leader of the house of Israel, Root of Jesse, key of David, day spring, splendor of eternal light, long for king of the nations, God with us, our king and lawgiver. These are all uh, designations for the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, revealed in the Old Testament and then brought to light by these antiphons that are from the 12th century. Seven of them. Now look closely at them and you'll appreciate the care that was taken to arrange them in this way. Thoroughly biblical, rooted in the Old Testament's designations for Jesus. But notice how they're arranged. If you look at the first letter, the first letter of the Latin word, you have sarcor. That's the uh, acronistic way of looking at it from the top to the bottom. This is what we call a reverse acrostic. If you look at it from the bottom to the top, it says cross, which in the Latin means, I shall be with you tomorrow. So it's a liturgical tool design in a day when they put a lot more thought into these things than we tend to do do so now, so that we remember that the purpose of these designations for Jesus is pointing out his eventual coming. He has come, but he is also coming again. I will be with you tomorrow, is what it is referring to and saying. Beautiful care taken in uh, these antiphons. In fact, if you think about it, the words come from the 5th century, uh, they're developed more in the 8th century. In the 12th century, we have a very clear uh, chanted song listing for these words. Now, I think it serves just for a moment to note this. Classic hymnody, that which is faithfully biblical and of high quality, will withstand the test of time. A lot changed between the 4th and the 8th century. A whole lot more changed between the 8th and the 12th century. Even more changed between the 12th century and the time of the 19th century that John Neal rearranged these words into the common uh, hymn that we sing now. Just because this, all these changes that happen in this time, 
it made no difference because the hymn lived on and continued on because of its excellence, because of how faithful it was to the biblical text. One has to wonder how many of today's songs, doctrinally anemic, man-centered, church songs of today, will withstand the next 10 years, let alone the next 1,000 years. Well, we have an example for us here today of words that are ancient, and they're always true, and they will be long after you and I are gone. Now, throughout the 1700s, and really up to the early part of the 1800s, we might call that the golden age of hymn writing. Really, it was a fruit of the the Protestant Reformation. Hymn writers began to again discover grace, discover the gospel, revive old hymns that uh, demonstrated that, and then write new ones that showed it forth in new ways. And for almost 200 years, we have the golden age of hymn writing, some of the greatest hymns ever drawn. I will just say this, that you can tell the health of the church based on the quality of the hymnody that comes from that era. Now, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about today's state of affairs, but please notice that the hymnody for a 200-year period is unparalleled. The amount of hymns written, their biblical quality, their theological depth. But then in the middle of the 1800s, what we notice, both in history and in hymnody, is a poorer standard of what is written. The gospel song begins to become more popular, although I'm not suggesting that it has no value. It does demonstrate a less trained laity and a less trained clergy, and we see some of that as we look at that era in church history, leading us up even to today. Well, John Mason Neal lived in the mid-1800s, and he noticed this slide from the era before him to where it was heading, and he decided one of his goals would be to take ancient hymns Uh, and revive them so that they could be sung in congregations. That was what fueled him to take these seven great O antiphons and turn it into the hymn that we have before us, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So he takes those seven, he reduces them to five, he then takes the last one in the seven and puts it to the front so that Emmanuel is first. And that's why we have it as the title, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So five of the seven great antiphons, Old Testament designations for Jesus, are then arranged by John Neal, set to music, music that is known as a plain song melody, which is also able to be sung in a chant form. We could easily do this, by the way. We could sing the verse and then have the choir respond by singing the refrain. So it's still set up for us to sing in that way. Neal did a wonderful job of preserving the tone the mood of the lyrics, yet making it possible for us to sing as a congregation. Now let's consider for a moment the lyrical content and the biblical depth of it. Look at your hymn there that you have, uh, your copy of the hymn. Five verses exist. The first verse, the one we are all most familiar with, most of us can sing uh, by heart, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom, captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, the reference to Emmanuel comes from Isaiah 7, where the prophet designates the coming one as Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, it needs to be mentioned that there was some kind of partial fulfillment that happened in the day of Isaiah, no doubt with King Ahaz and how he was revealing himself, that is the Lord, to Israel. But it always had its long-term fulfillment to be complete in Christ. We know this because in Matthew 1, Matthew writes, She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And in a divine commentary, Matthew says, Emmanuel means God with us. So the first verse of this great hymn points out this concept of Emmanuel, God with us. And I think Neil probably put it in the front to remind us of the personal, intimate nature of God and the length he would go to send God himself to dwell among us. Now that is completely foreign to every other religious construct. You will never have someone who adheres to Islam talk about God in a personal way. Never. In fact, the way we speak of God is offensive to them as our father, as one who we are related to because of the Son. And so God with us gives us a whole new perspective on God, being intimately involved with his people, close to us. Please also notice, ransom captive Israel. Maybe you might have thought that your singing this was somehow praying for the ethnic Jews of our day. We're praying for Israel, or we're thanking God for what he did for Israel. That was not in the minds of the 5th century writers of these words, nor in the 8th century translators of the word, nor in the 12th century. That kind of thinking is relatively new, that Israel is Israel and church is the church. Israel is synonymous with the church. Ransoming Israel means ransoming God's people. And our forefathers, no matter what ethnic background you are, our forefathers in the faith was Israel. So when they were ransomed, we were ransomed. We're the people of God. This is as much for us as it ever was for the church of God, before the cross or after the cross. We know this unity of thought because in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew was written, it was translated into Greek. And when the Greek translators translated the Septuagint, the version of the Bible most of the apostles would have known, they translated the same word for Israel. They translated as ecclesia, the same word they used for church in most cases to demonstrate God's people of all time, regardless of whether they're part of a particular nation or not. Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate, the version that the hymn writer would have known, or the original writers of the word, does the same thing in Latin. He translates the word from the Hebrew, that means Israel, into the Latin word for church in most cases. Again, showing the unity of the people of God This verse, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Ransom God's people who are enslaved not any longer by Pharaoh, but by their own sin, by our sin. Come and ransom us. The second verse of the hymn, notice it with me. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law and cloud and majesty and awe. To be honest, this verse fooled me. I thought, how is that biblical? Because what the verse is implying, if you look at it closely, is that Jesus was somehow, that is, the second person of the Trinity, somehow there present at the giving of the law. I didn't read that in my, my version. In fact, I went back to Exodus to try to remember this picture, this picture that the hymn talks about. In ancient times, they'd give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. You probably remember that. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up into the, up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, the text does not say explicitly that the second person of the Trinity came down to be Moses. But just ask yourself this question. This is what a rich, wonderful hymn does. It makes you ask the question, where was Jesus? Where was the Holy Spirit? He was with God. He was there when the law was given. He, he didn't look away. This is a righteous thing that happened. He didn't sit off on the bench somewhere while the Father went and did the work. He was there, and he came to Moses. The text that was written, uh, read this morning, Micah 5, 2. You, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Ruler. Rule based on God's eternal law. He's the lawgiver. It says as much in Isaiah 32, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Christ and the Holy Spirit were with God the Father when meeting Moses. How that looked, I don't know, and we won't know till heaven. But we know that when this verse refers to the giving of the law, Christ was present. The same Christ who comes to intimately dwell within us now is Emmanuel. This hymn does a wonderful job of causing us to ask deep theological questions. It does a wonderful job of casting our view heavenward. It leaves us wanting more rather than saying, boy, they could have said a whole lot more than that. Thank you. cup of cold water in Jesus' name, and I appreciate that. <clears throat> if you could put some tea and honey in that, that would even be even better. Let's look at the third verse of the same hymn. <clears throat> o come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. The third verse refers to Isaiah 11's depiction of the Messiah as the distant relative of the family of Jesse. Of course, Jesse is David's father. And eventually, Christ comes from the line of David. But I want you to notice something else that comes from these ancient lyrics. An implication. Or maybe you might even say an inference drawn from Scripture and then given to us. The particular nature of the redemption Messiah would accomplish. This is very calculating words. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. <clears throat> from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. It's very particular in the application of the work of Messiah. Thine own, thy people, give them victory. These words, probably originating in the 5th century, support the doctrine of particular redemption. And this makes good sense because the Scripture teaches the doctrine of particular redemption. And it embodies it and sings it forth and celebrates it. Look also now at the fourth verse of this great hymn. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and shear us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. 
The fourth verse refers to Christ in a way that the last prophet of the Old Testament labels him. Malachi 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So Jesus is compared to the rising of the sun and the effect the rising sun has on the darkened and cold earth. Luke, in chapter 1, verse 78, says, Similarly, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. A beautiful picture in connection to the scriptures is this reference to the day spring. Day is springing. That's what it is when Jesus comes. This week is the opening of the movie rendition of one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, I am extremely nervous. Anytime Disney gets its hands on anything, I'm very nervous. However, I'm looking forward to this movie. The things I've seen seem to show that it's faithful to the book. And in the book, there's this picture that really uh, resembles this concept of Jesus as the day spring, who springs day. If you're familiar with the story, the curse upon Narnia, this world that exists, at least in the imagination of C.S. Lewis, is shown forth by the frozen earth, the winter that never ends. Everything is frozen. But when the prophetic wheels start turning and the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve come to get closer to the throne that they will take, Aslan, the creator of all this and Christ figure of the book, comes and starts to draw near. And as he draws near, that winter starts to wane. Things start to melt. It starts to get warmer. There's a neat picture where uh, the kids are running with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and as they're running, snow's falling off the trees. Flowers are busting forth. They can identify landscape. The witch hates it because she's put the curse on it. But the creation starts to awake, and it's all because Aslan is coming. His presence cannot be denied. He cannot be put back. And as Christ comes... Although there is still winter, you still see it, things are starting to melt. They started to melt then, they're continuing to melt, and I think they're melting all the more until his coming in glory. The day spring from on high, our Savior coming as he dispels darkness. Please also notice the beauty of this this verse in the hymn. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. You probably have looked out and seen some pretty clear nights, and you could see a long way. Stars and moonlight can show you a lot. You could really go a long way in the dark. But when clouds cover the sky, there's nothing darker. So it's not just a matter of night. It's that clouds, cloudy, gloomy clouds cover all light. But when the sun rises, even through the clouds, you could see the brightness of the rising sun. The coming of Christ chases night away and changes the entire perspective of life for all of us. The final verse of the hymn O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. The final verse of this great hymn refers to the coming Savior as key of David. Now this is a reference to the king, King David, and his lordship over Jerusalem. Jerusalem being that place, Zion, the the dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, God's people, the place to be. And Isaiah is fond of referring to David in messianic terms, meaning that his eventual offspring, David's, will bring a spiritual 
eternal reality to all the physical ways in which David was ruler of Israel. Very simply, Christ holds the key to heaven. Christ is the one who leads his people to the ultimate victory over sin. Not only its penalty and its power, but eventually away from its presence to be with him in glory. Isaiah 22, verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall, sh- shall shut and none shall open. The point is Jesus holds the keys to heaven. Only through him can we have that eternal life. It's not one of the keys. He is the key of David. And we enter heavenly rest because of him. What a wonderful hymn in all of its form and structure and design. I want to draw just three applications for you and for me today based on the words that are here given to us in this great biblical hymn. First of all, there is great value, I hope you have seen, in knowing the Old Testament at least better than we do. Really, to know it well would be best. The hymn identifies five different Old Testament passages that label the Messiah and forecast his coming. Emmanuel, Rod of Jesse, Key of David, Dayspring, Lord, King. To know Christ better is to know him in his wholeness, in his totality, in the way the Bible reveals him. And I think we should quit giving out just New Testaments. That's only a third of the Bible, and you can't even understand it right unless you have the other two-thirds. So let's pay the extra money when we give out Bibles and get the whole Bible. Because it tells us everything about Jesus that way. Don't you want people to know Christ? The whole Bible tells us about Christ. And so uh, when we think in terms of that 66% of the Bible that's called the Old Testament, think of it with new eyes, a way to get to know Jesus better. And as you think about it, it's sort of like that photo album that sits on so many people's coffee table. You know them. You know them real well. In fact, I've had this happen here. I've known you for years coming here to Redeemer. I think I know you real well. And I know you basically based on what you've told me about yourself and how I've known you for these past amount of years. But then I go and I sit and look at that photo album I see on your coffee table, and it tells me a lot more about you. Stuff that you didn't tell me. Like, wow, look at how long your hair is, man. And Or look, you had hair. That's incredible. Look at that. Or whatever the case may be. The 30 extra pounds, whatever it may be between then and now. I know you better. There's a sense in which the Old Testament gives us that extra perspective about our Savior. So like Simeon, when Jesus comes, he says, I've seen the consolation of Israel. This is all that I've been reading about, and now he's here. Well, now we on this side of the cross can go back and get a better picture of Jesus as a result of studying the Old Testament. Let me give you a particular challenge. I'm not going to give you Isaiah. I'll I'll have mercy this year. Just pick up Micah and make it part of your regular Advent reading. Just the book of Micah. Keep reading the other passages you would read as a family. Continue to recite Luke 2 or whatever it is that you do as a tradition in your home. But also spend time with Micah, the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. And also pick with with it maybe the Reformation Study Bible if you have one or a commentary that will help you better understand what the prophet's saying. Just make it a goal this Advent season for the next four weeks to better understand the message of Micah. And I promise you that will enhance your vision of the Savior from this hymn is written. There's a second application. The hymn is wonderfully honest about our need to be ransomed. We need to be ransomed from the penalty and the power of sin. You know, the opening verse uses a vivid term, ransom. Have you thought about the term ransom? 
Ransom, among other things, means an outside power must act to save you. You can't ransom yourself. The hymn uses vivid imagery also, all biblical imagery, to give us the straight story about our condition and our need to be rescued. Look at the text uh, the text of the, the hymn. Verse 1, ransom means we need to be ransomed. We're in a bad state of affairs. Mourning, we're mourning our sinful estate. We're in exile. That's just the first verse. Verse 2 <clears throat> reveals the awful otherness of God in the giving of the law that we fail to keep and therefore need someone to keep for us. It reminds us of our sin. Verse 3 of the hymn, talking about using the term free. It's because we're enslaved. We're under Satan's tyranny, not just Satan's rule, his tyranny, his oppressiveness, his punishment that he pours out on us. We're helpless. We need liberation. The depths of hell is our state, as the verse, verse 3 says. Destined to the grave, not to great things, not a bright future. All true, and we need to hear why it is that we are to be ransomed or need to be ransomed from the penalty and power of sin. The fourth verse. Cheer us. Why do we need to be cheered? Because we're gloomy. We need, in our sinful state, to be brought up from the depths of it under gloomy clouds of night, the darkest of dark, not even the stars or the moon to give us light. The inevitability of death always looms. Death, death's dark shadow that can never be shaken. The reaper comes. In the fifth verse, need to be let out of all this mess that we are in. To be freed from misery. What a graphic term, misery. To be freed from that path that we're on. So the hymn is very honest, very biblical, and very needed. We need to be ransomed from all these things. But like all great hymns, the third application, we are reminded against the backdrop of this gloominess, this sin, this despair, this enslavement, that our Savior is totally sufficient to rescue us. As bad as it is, Christ is that good, is that sufficient, is that faithful, is that able to save us from all of it. Every title for Christ makes clearer the sufficiency of Jesus to save us. In the first verse, God with us, intimately with you, not to leave you alone. Verse 2, Lord of might, he has the power necessary to save. It's one thing for me to say I'll save you, but if you know I can't, what confidence does that give you? But the Lord of might says he'll save you. That's power. The third verse, the rod of Jesse, the long-awaited Savior. This is not just plan B or an emergency plan that comes up. This is something that has long been planned and is steady and secure in eternal history. The rod of Jesse, the ancient of days, has come. The fourth verse, day spring from on high. He comes as the light. He dispels darkness. He is the light. He is the way, the answer to all these things. In the fifth verse, he's the key of David, not one of the keys, but the key to heaven and eternal life, able to escort us safely home. This ancient hymn is truly one of the greatest hymns ever penned. You can see why. It has a perfect balance of the reality of our situation and the answer in Christ, God's sovereign fulfillment of it, his love for his people, the surety of all that he promises, everything you could want for something that is a human uh, endeavor is embodied in this hymn. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, and he will come again, this time in ultimate glory.
Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for uh, the promise of the coming one. He has come once. He came really under the veil of uh, some secrecy, some ignorance, people around not knowing what this was, what child this is. But Lord, slowly but surely it became revealed that he is the one. And now, Lord, we don't look for one to come to submit himself to Pilate. We don't come for one that will necessarily stoop to wash our feet. Instead, Lord, because of the surety of his first coming, we look forward to the surety of his glorious return and ransom us once again, finally, from the presence of sin as the key of David. We thank you for this, look forward to this, and make us live in light of that now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.